Karen, uh, she, she has brought so much glory to God in this recovery, and she gives all the credit to him. And did you know that Karen now is one, actually one of the Cellular Recovery core leaders? Uh, she's also a facilitator for a small group and part of the worship band. Uh, and if I would have asked her that when she first started the ministry, she would say, there's no way that I would do that. But God has changed her so much. And one of the things I like about Celebrate Recovery is that uh, it's not just about recovery. In fact, uh, sometimes I have the audacity to tell people who come to CR to Celebrate Recovery, look, if you're here just to be recovered, you're wasting your time. Because recovery has to do with coming to know Christ. And when you come to know Christ, then your recovery is real and genuine. And scripture tells us, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? So if I recover from something, but I still don't have Christ in my life, this scripture applies to me. So I ask you, um, please continue praying for Celebrate Recovery. We meet every Monday night at 6.30 p.m. at Bayview campus. And uh, we're really excited for it. It's been our fourth year uh, that we've been there, and God's doing some great things. So let's, uh, why don't you join me in prayer for today's message. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this beautiful morning. Lord, you brought us here for a reason. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be open to what you have for us. Lord, you know what we're facing in our lives. Lord, whether it be in the family, our jobs, our relationships, and just being here in this uh, troubling world at this time. So open our eyes that we would realize the authority that you have given us through your word and that we may walk in it. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So unity. How do we move towards one another in conflict? It's a big question to answer. What are the habits drawing us near that we can helpfully express in the most challenging time. The definition of unity, this is straight from the, from the dictionary, a whole or totality as combining all its parts into one. The state of fact of being united or combined into one as the parts of a whole. So this morning, to answer these questions, we will focus from a passage in 1 Peter 3, verse 8 through 9. Now, in his letter, Peter writes to Christians who are suffering in this goal to grow and to reinforce unity in the midst of conflict and hardships that they were facing. I don't know about you, but that sounds like us now, too. There's so much going on in this world, so much conflict, so much hardships. And Peter points out to the fundamental qualities that we're trying to cultivate for struggling through the hardships, whether it be in marital conflict or just being a Christian, but also the hardships that face as brothers and sisters in Christ. So Peter has much to offer in just these two verses. I really want to break them down. A very brief background, though, is that chapter 3, Peter begins with much instruction on husbands and wives. 
instructing wives and husbands how to conduct themselves. But then we get to the, the today's key verses. So again, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says, All of you be like-minded, understanding, showing brotherly love, tender-hearted and humble. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. But to, but to the contrary, bless, because to this you have been called in order that you may inherit blessings. Again, a lot packed in these two verses. And what's important about this passage is that it frames the importance movements in fostering unity in conflict. So let's consider each of these phrases carefully. The first one is to be like-minded. Like-minded now by nature happen, uh, happens to be that conflicts happen when we disagree, isn't it? Or when we're differently minded. In other words, there is no conflict when two of us think alike. Yet, even in the midst, even in the midst of a disagreement, it is not only possible to be like-minded, but it's the aim of conflict. That is the aim of conflict when we are like-minded in the disagreement. However, this does not happen because a person conforms to the other opinions or likeness, or because maybe their temperament or personality is the same. It's more than that. You see, we may think, we may think that when we are naturally more similar, that we deal less with conflict and that it's easier to deal with conflict. But like-minded is more than that. Peter is pointing to a way of thinking when it comes to like-minded, speaking when it comes to like-minded, and moving in conflict when it comes to like-minded. There's a Russian, Russian author, Leo Tolstoy. He captures it this way very well. What counts in making a happy marriage or a relationship is not so much how compatible you are, but how you deal with your incompatibility. That's how we best can describe what Peter's trying to say here. And this is the like-minded that Peter is encouraging us. So let's talk a little more about like-minded. The foundation of like-mindedness is sharing the same faith in Christ Jesus as the risen Lord. Do we have that in common? This commitment profoundly joins a husband and wife or a brother and sister in Christ, however different they may be. As Christians or Christian couples, we share a common story of comfort and joy that comes from being united in Christ. Would you agree? That's what we share our comfort in. We are united in Christ. And that's because we know the love. And now we love someone else more than we love each other. We love someone else more than we love each other. Think about that. If I'm having a conflict with someone, whether it be my wife or a brother and sister in Christ, I love someone else more than I love the other person that I'm having the conflict, and that is Christ. I love Christ. But unity in all and of itself is not the final goal. There's a different kind of unity. 
I mean, if you recall Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, they were unified, but they were unified in what? In their deceit, in their lies. And they both dropped dead. Now we can compare it to maybe Priscilla and Aquila, who united in hospitality instead, and in the ministry of the gospel. That's the kind of like-mindedness we're looking for that is aligned with God's word. So the best way to be like-minded is to be as believers and as spouses to have the Christ, the mind of Christ in us. What matters is that we fix our minds on Christ, folks. His mind and on his ways. Christian unity is found in bringing your thinking in line. This is really important. Christian unity is found in bringing your thinking in line with the ways Jesus thinks and how he moves. It's found in being conscious of God and his word. That is like-minded. That is what Peter's talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that as believers, we have the mind of Christ? Folks, we have that mind, but many times we rather just use our own and be in our flesh. In the most severe conflict of all time, Christ did not take advantage of or exploit his gifts as God. Do you remember that? He abandoned them so the, for the sake of the world and he gave himself to us in love. The mind of Christ to which we tune our thoughts and emotions and actions. How are we doing with being like-minded as Christians? That's a good question to ask ourselves. Lately, I have to be truthful, I can't believe my eyes and my ears how God's people are treating each other, especially in the areas of politics and all the other conflicts going on in this world. And I'm including myself there too. I feel really convicted sometimes. Do they, do they see my like-mindedness, my like-mindedness of Christ as I speak about anything for that matter? Yet God's word tells us that we can still disagree and still have the commonality of having the unity of being like-minded, especially the way we treat each other. Again, by having the mind of Christ. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, How good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. He's talking about God as people, folks. That's us. Ephesians 4.3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Wow. Jesus himself, while praying to his Father, stressed the same thing. John 17.23 says, In them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you notice that unity there? Him, his Father, us, and Christ. Like-minded. The next one is 
Be understanding. Be understanding. As Christians or as couples, like-minded prepares us to be understanding. It just clicks right with it. Each of us, by focusing on others' experience instead of ourselves, it's amazing what happens when we do that. Our understanding of other persons grow. Sometimes when we're in an argument or some kind of conflict, we are so busy trying to show them about us, my reasoning, why I'm right, why they're wrong. But to understand the other person is really important. You see, before there was ignorance when we had arguments and conflict. Before we saw the other person in a very unfavorable way and an unloving way. But now as a Christian or as a spouse, we start to hear what's happening behind the scenes. And we become curious to hear the rest of the story. We put our defenses down and we say, let me hear what they're really trying to see in the midst of all this conflict and anger. And all of a sudden, conflicts becomes an opportunity to put ourselves in others' shoes, to experience what he or she is feeling at that time, and to appreciate others' point of view. In other words, to be understanding. It may sound like, oh, okay, I guess that makes sense now that you explain that to me, or I can see why you responded that way at that time. Be understanding. That's the way, that's why it's so important that our love does not stop growing, especially when it comes to being compassionate, the knowledge of others. Philippians 1 verse 9 says, I pray that your love will overflow, overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. That should be our heart, that we are constantly learning more about our husbands and wives or our brothers and sisters in Christ. Folks, love and unity is an action verb. It really is. It's something we need to do, something we need to apply. It grows in knowledge and understanding of the other person. That's why many couples become stagnant in seeking to understand and sympathize with each other and actually can be a very lethal thing for our marriages. Christians, and especially spouses in trouble, are in trouble when we get stuck in their patterns of how they see and think about one another. Our pride can truly cause us to believe that we have this person figured out, that I know everything about my wife, or the, that the wife knows everything about their husband. Or as a Christian, that I know everything about that brother. I don't need to learn more about them. And we stop asking things like, am I hearing you right? Or do I understand you when you say? And we stop learning about them. When a believer fixes his or her mind on understanding and inhabiting the other person's world, it is often the turning point in conflict. To be understanding is to nurture the desire to understand, remember, and pursue the best for the other person. We need to be understanding as Christians. We need to fight against assumptions and presumptions. 
Folks, to love one another is to believe. It's to say, I have so much to learn. I must always be a student of my spouse or my fellow believer. When it comes to his thoughts, his fears, his desires, and experience. Being like-minded and understanding are so crucial as a believer. The next one is show brotherly love. When we hear show brotherly love, sometimes we tend to think that it's just playing well, being nice with each other. But it's more than that. We need to remember that as believers in Christ and husbands and wives, we are first siblings. We forget that, don't we? We are siblings before we're husband and wives. There's this kingship, this bond between believing spouses and believers, which is a key to unity. To show brotherly love. As a couple, before they are husband and wife, before you are husband and wife as a couple, you are brother and sister in Christ. Children of the same God, of the same Father. We have been born again and are adopted into God's family as siblings. So why is that so important? So unity are needed for both spouses because we are all adopted and children of God. And I like how the Amplified Version says it in Romans 12.10. It says, Be devoted to one another with authentic brotherly affection as members of one family. If you're a believer, we are brothers and sisters. If you're a believer who's married, you're still brothers and sisters. Give preference to one another in honor, it says. One way to encourage brotherly love in conflict is to help believers and couples cultivate that habit of praying with each other and one another. That's how we really get that brotherly love as we come together to pray. We come to our Father as a brother and sister in Christ first. And then as Christians or as husband and wife. You know, this shared vulnerability and the need that is expressed in prayer when we pray, even before the conflict is fully resolved, it is often also the turning point of conflict. Prayer restores us to perspective, humility, and tenderheartedness as dear, beloved children of God. So you are a brother and sister in Christ. And you might say to yourself, well, I can be mad at my wife or I can be mad at my husband and I'm not going to talk to him or her. They deserve, deserve this or that. But you're also saying that to a brother and sister in Christ. But we come to tenderheartedness now. Tenderheartedness toward your spouse or your fellow believer might be the first feeling that evaporates when, you, when your anger escalates, doesn't it? You don't feel like being tenderhearted when you're in conflict with someone. Not only are we tempted to take that hardened, unfavorable view towards that person, but we also harden ourselves in self-protection, which makes it impossible for others to access our hearts. 
We just shut down, put up walls. I'm not going to share anything that makes me vulnerable. And that's why tenderheartedness can be viewed in two ways, actually. One, compassion in how we view our spouse or others. How we view them. And two, vulnerability and transparency to reveal in our own heart what we have when we are in conflict. That's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. But first, the best way to stay soft-hearted towards our spouse or others is to stay rooted in how God has loved us. We need to stay rooted on how he loved us, how he died for us. This leads directly to imitating God's love with a soft heart. Ephesians 4.32 tells us, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How can we not be tender-hearted if Christ was tender-hearted for us, if he forgave us and continues to forgive us? Folks, tender-hearted is one of the most purest ways to imitate our Heavenly Father. To stay motivated, to be gracious with one another, to be willing to overlook, to forgive, and to remain soft. We must be of the conviction that this is how God treats me through Jesus and in Jesus. You know, earlier when we were praying before the service, I really felt the heaviness in my heart for, uh, for couples especially. And my prayer was that, Lord, if uh, couples are coming here today that uh, have lack of unity, that maybe might not be speaking, that might be angry with each other, uh, Lord, that you would speak through them, uh, through this message, through this word, and that there is a way through Christ, that reconciliation is possible. Secondly, to be tenderhearted means we recognize that conflict is a time to confide your tender longings, your concerns, your anxieties, and insecurities. It requires a willingness. It requires a willingness to lay down your weapons and be vulnerable. Now that's a really hard thing when you're having a conflict or an argument to lay down my weapons, whatever they are. There are many types of weapons. It might be our intelligence, how we think about the person, how more educated they are, how I've been to a theology school and they haven't, and I can use that as a weapon. You name it. We need to lay those down. Being tender-hearted communicates that you care and you are willing to take risks for the good of your marriage or for the good of your relationship with your brother and sister in Christ. It's not about winning the fight. It's about unity. It's about coming together. When we fail to be tender-hearted, it communicates self-protection and lack of investment in my relationship with that person. We're just protecting ourselves. We don't want to look weak. We want to look strong. We want to win victory in this argument. But it totally destroys unity. If you haven't noticed... All that Peter has shared so far requires humility. 
But we see that he decides to mention being humble all by itself in the scripture. And rightfully so. You see, in conflict, and we know, all of us know this, the opposite of humility rears its ugly head, doesn't it, when we're in conflict. The last thing we want to be is humble when we're in conflict. And that is self-righteousness, that feeling that we are more superior, self-ambition, and that defensiveness that we get. And each of these hinder unity from happening. The best conflict is when we can speak candidly and yet hold loosely to our own perception and innocence in the matter. Is that possible? Can I still hold on to my perception and innocence, but yet not blurt out pain and punishment through my tongue? So the most mature couple and believers demonstrate this type of humility when they deal with a conflict or a problem. You hear attentiveness as they put their complaint into words such as, now listen to some of these, these are just three examples, but they're really humble. I may be overly sensitive here, but, or I know I can be hard to live with, but there's a certain humbleness that even begins the sentence when you're in conflict. I don't think I even knew why I was grumpy, but we're being humble about it, but yet still sharing how we feel. So even their most delicate conversations are seasoned with humble acknowledgement and healthy self-doubt. This is something that we need to practice, folks. It doesn't come naturally, but most importantly, the Holy Spirit working through us will enable us to do this. Peter includes humility as an essential quality of unity in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. I'm sorry, I think I... No, it's Paul, sorry. Paul says it this way. Do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. There you go again, the selfish ambition or conceitedness. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, again, it's not about me, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which, you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Is it in your mentality? Is it something you read in a book? No, it's in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Folks, he had every right to call legions of angels when he was here being punished. He had every right to get mouthy with many people who were punishing him. But he didn't. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, who are we? Who are we that we shouldn't do the same? Does it sound like I'm coming here to punish you? I hope not. 
I, I'm just sharing what I really think God's word is saying here, and, and we, all, we all need to hear this, starting with me. Uh, this world is very difficult, as I said, and it's so easy for us to just open our mouths or treat someone. Not that long ago, there was a, a person that um, decided to put uh, one of those political signs on, that, that's in front of their yard and uh, decided to put it on fire for someone's other sign. And I'm like, wow, how is that helping? How is that helping? Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. That's the next one. Now Peter's instruction here is what not to do. In short, he says, do not retaliate. Do not retaliate when someone moves against or away from you. Wow, that's a tough one. The way for, for a couple or believers to break free from this is not to retaliate when attacked or avoided. When there's no retaliation, it causes the attacking or the withdrawing of the person to pause. They have nothing to fight against because you're not giving them anything to re retaliate for. You're not repaying evil for evil. You are not insulting them because they insulted you. And the cycle of conflict starts to deteriorate when the other person patiently and gently bears the other sin. I can only think that Peter's reflecting in Jesus' example what he saw when he heard Jesus not do anything from the time he was arrested all the way up to the time of his uh, crucifixion. He had so many things that he could have said. Jesus did not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. Jesus did not verbally attack or threaten. In other words, move against. And he does not lie or deceive. In other words, move away from the situation. Let's remember and meditate on the reality that Christ's unjust and undeserved suffering accomplished God's redemption of the world. It accomplished something, folks. It will accomplish something in us, too. When we suffer in conflict without retaliation and by just entrusting ourselves and our marriage to God, we share Christ's suffering and leave room for him. We leave room for him to do his work in our spouse's heart and mind or our brother and sister in Christ. Sometimes we don't leave room for him. We wrap it from the beginning to the end and it's done with. What I said is what I mean and I give no room for Christ. Jesus gave us many examples for our sake. His suffering of many injustices. He gave us a model to follow, didn't he? He showed us the pathway of peace. He showed us the deliverance and the accomplishment, accomplishment of God's purposes for conflict. There is a purpose for conflict. The question is, which one are we taking? The one that glorifies God or the one that glorifies us? Finally, it says, bless. Because to do this, you have been called in order that you may inherit blessing. So to not retaliate, 
to hide a good first step. But Peter calls believers to go further. It is a good first step to not retaliate. It is a good first step to not put up your walls. But Peter is calling us to do more than that. We must actually bless the other person or spouse in conflict. How much, how much of that do we do? We're like, whew, this conflict is done. I'm thankful it's over, and that's it. But when we hear bless, our mind goes elsewhere since we hear the word so commonly in conversations. God bless you, blessings, you name it, we hear it. But to bless is to take note of another's need. It's to go further with that person you're having a conflict with and respond by meeting those needs. Bless, because to this you have been called in order that you may inherit blessing. Paul describes what blessing looks like like this in Romans 12, 14 through 15 and 20. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There's a lot of opportunities to do that now in these days. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals in his head. To give this kind of blessing in conflict means that we hear the desires, the fear, the doubts, and insecurities and take action towards that person. It is a Christ-like and beautiful question to ask questions like this, honey, what do you need from me right now when we're in conflict? Or how can I help you in the midst of this conflict that we have? We bless our spouses or other believers when we wrestle with our hearts until we are convinced that we must pursue the other spouses or believers' good and well-being. Do you see how further we go? It's not just finishing a conflict. It's not just finishing an argument. It's not just feeling like you were victorious, but now you're taking their side in the sense of what do you need? How can I help you? How can I serve you? And again, that doesn't mean that we actually agree with what the conflict was all about, but we can still be Christ-like in the midst of that. Why? Because God sought our good. We are willing and able. That's why. Through the Spirit's power, we can do this. To pursue our spouse's or our brother and sister's good, we can do this. Blessing other communicates, I desire your good more than being right. Hmm. That is a level that sometimes I'm not in. I must admit. Asserting my rights, no. I desire your good. Retaliating, no, I desire your good. Or winning this argument, no, it's more than that. How can I show Christ in this argument? This requires a growing love of Christ and an active entrusting of ourselves into God's care, doesn't it? It is to do this you have been called. It is to this you have been called. Finally, in order to, that you may inherit this blessing, that's how it finishes. The blessing we receive 
are that God's very eyes will be on us and his ears will be open to our prayers in a special way. 1 Peter 3.10 says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 1 Peter 3.12 For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are upon their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So as I wrap up, I'd like to invite the band up front. And again, I just want to uh, put that verse and complete again on the screen, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9. All of you be like-minded, understanding, showing brotherly love, tender-hearted, and humble. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. 